Hello and welcome to the Manifest Image. Here we look at art movements, their works, theory, and explore their relevance to creatives of today. What I dream of is an art of balance, of purity and serenity, devoid of troubling or depressing subject matter. An art which might be for every mental worker, be he businessman or writer, like an appeasing influence, like a mental soother, something like a good armchair in which to rest from physical fatigue. This week, Henri Matisse's Notes on a Painter from 1908. I'm Thomas Greengrass. And I'm Ariel de la Garza. So, Ariel, notes on a painter. Yes. Excited for this one? I am excited for notes of a painter. So, this one was published in 1908, 25th of December, in La Grande Revue. This particular translation is by Alfred H. Barr, Jr., um, published in 1951 in a Museum of Modern Art edition. Fantastic. So, before we dive into this particular text, let's have just a brief bio. This is Henri Matisse, along with Picasso, probably in the earliest part of the 20th century, the number two, or joint, most influential uh, painter and artist generally. Uh, Matisse is born in 1869, uh, and yeah, he does have quite a, a late style. He was never meant to be a painter, really. Uh, he doesn't actually start painting, he doesn't develop that interest until much later. He has a bout of appendicitis, uh, and his mother gives him some paints just a while away at the time. Uh, he's originally supposed to be studying law, and, well, also perhaps to inherit his father's business. But art is actually very far away. He's certainly not a child prodigy. He is, however, quite interestingly mixed in with a lot of different art schools of that time, and he'll meet a lot of different people. We're looking at him at the moment with respect to the Forbes. Uh, but he had a long connection. He tries to get into various art schools and takes lots of different art classes. In about 1890 or early 1891, he uh, studies with uh, William Borano, Mm-hmm. Borgo, <laughs> come on, Ariel, help Bourgeau. me Bourgeau. Uh, at the Academy Julien, uh, and he's preparing to take exams to try to get into the Ecole de Beaux Arts. He doesn't really have much success. Mm. We're not going to look at it now, but you can actually see some of his early compositions for this, and they're pretty ropey. Mm-hmm. Um, the modelling is quite poor, especially towards the bottom of the figure. But uh, he he does take classes uh, uh, with these people, and uh, he certainly uh, he then attends the Ecole d'Art Décoratif, um, where he forms his long-standing friendship with Albert Marquette, mm-hmm. uh, another of our Forbes. And um, he does study at the Ecole de Beaux Arts eventually, and studies under uh, Gustave Moreau. Uh, who is very encouraging and a great supporter of Matisse, in fact, uh, despite the fact that you might not tell it from their styles. Uh, later on, he, he goes off with uh, Emile Verre mm-hmm. uh, in order to uh, actually learn about Impressionism. 
and uh, this becomes a new focus for him in the late 1890s. Uh, he, he carries on, he meets lots of different Impressionists and Neo-Impressionists and Post-Impressionists. So he becomes acquainted with Pissarro, mm -hmm. uh, and he'll also become acquainted with Signac. Mm -hmm. And we'll see that in our second episode, uh, our episode that will follow this, because um, uh, Signac will actually be a huge supporter of uh, Matisse, mm -hmm. uh, buying certain works. And we know that uh, Matisse does indeed read his, uh, his great work, uh, Delacroix, to neo-impressionism uh, but yeah he carries on he, he carries on taking classes all around later on on Pissarro's advice he travels to London and actually becomes acquainted with Turner's paintings mm -hmm. so again carrying on this impressionist uh, influence he eventually does get kicked out of the Ecole de Beaux Art mm -hmm. because one he is 30 by this point pretty old yeah for an artist at the time in school Yeah, he's, he's still a student. Mm -hmm. He's still a student at this point. And he's certainly not an independent artist, you know, and he can't quite capture that academic style. Mm. And Moreau, by this point, has died. And it's his successor at the, uh, uh, at the Ecole de Beaux Art. So, mm -hmm. And he's not a fan of Matisse. The But successor. Yes. Yeah. And so, yeah, maybe it's too radical. Maybe it's also because he's just a bit old by this mm. point. And so it's like, well, come on, get out the door. Uh, he, um, and also the the standards um, for painting at the time were incredibly high. I mean, they're mm. those very academic paintings. One can have many critiques of them, and we might go on to talk about a few of them later. But the technique is is very very impressive. I mean, it's it's a master. It really is a mastery of of uh, I guess drawing from life, um, mm. and that is d difficult to achieve. It's really not easy. Yeah, you've got this uh, neoclassical style, essentially. And, I mean, some relations to that. You've got the symbolists, again, shown through people like uh, Moreau, which can get through, and romantic art is still sort of allowed. But really, anything that is a little bit more experimental, it's mm -hmm. just not happening. It's sure. just not happening. He does carry on, and he meets other people. He signs up, um, to uh, rejoins the Académie Julien, Uh, and then he goes off to study under Eugène Carrier, where he meets uh, André Darin and Flamique, mm -hmm. and they have a good friendship there as well. We've already talked about that in some other episodes. But the point still, uh, the point here is, he's meeting a lot of uh, impressionists and post-impressionists. He's meeting a lot of diff uh, artists who are masters of themselves. Some that are very charitable to him, others mm -hmm. who are not. But he is. He is studying at the schools and taking classes. He's not a sort of self-taught person. He is actually fully sort of uh, uh, ingratiated, but he's more sort of soaking because he's not actually that good at this point. Mm -hmm. He's not that good. And these are, these are the key things. The rest of it we've covered in our other episodes where they carry on, you know, going off to Van Gogh exhibitions with Durand and... Yes, and we'll, we've spoken about that in 1904, 1905, Summers at Collier. Um, but the points that I wanted to emphasize mm -hmm. is he is not a natural painter. He was not a child prodigy. He mm -hmm. comes to this late in life. And um, he's also not very self-taught. He does take a lot of classes. Mm. But then his, so he's almost, you can almost think of his biography as networking mm -hmm. in a very strange way. Well, sir, I mean... I'd say more he, yeah, he seemed to have met. Yes. Uh, and fallen in with the right crowd at the time. Yeah. 
But funny that he does it, he just can't stay with them. He, he can't stay with them. He, he never masters that neoclassical style, really. I don't think in any of his works. But he goes on to meet all the different people that also can't master it or perhaps do and move on. Mm. I mean, Picasso could have done that style if he'd wished, probably. Yeah, well, we see it in actually some of Picasso's early works. Yeah, he could have and he chose not to. Hmm? And just as a fun aside, there was actually, uh, I believe, it was either Tate or MoMA, um, one or the other, uh, did actually uh, uh, a exhibition that was comparing a load of uh, uh, Picasso and Matisse works uh, well, and I... showing a kind of a dialogue between them, even though they didn't actually always get on. They, they did get on, but they had a healthy sort of competition. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, one of the uh, seminal children's books that I read over and over again as a, as a child was um, the rivalry between Pig, Casso, and Matisse, where Matisse oh. was, a, was a cow and Picasso a pig. It was a great book. Really? It was really brilliant, yeah, about both of them. What did you find so impressive about it? It was very, very funny, and yeah. it showed you their different styles. It was kind of wonderfully made. Ah, it's quite see, beautiful. Ah, see, you, you started off young being pretentious. I read The Hungry I Caterpillar. You know? <laughs> that's what I got. And that's why you turned out as <laughs> you <know. laughs> That's it, yeah. Mm. I, I know. I should have blamed my parents. They didn't start me off mm. on the right stuff. M- what was it? Big Mo- Casso and Moutisse. Moutisse. Great, great stuff. Now, turning to Notes of a Painter, 1908. This is a far-reaching text. And I think that notes is key. You were saying earlier, before we re- started re- our recording, that mm-hmm. there is a, a, a kind of disunity in this text. And so Absolutely. I think the best way to look at it is that there are notes. These are notes. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a little more than just uh, disconnected thoughts. There is actually some sort of unity throughout. But it's funny. And mm. we, we should cut Matisse some slack here because he says that this is his first critical artistic writing mm-hmm. um, and apart from say some letters and things like that so he's he seems to be a little bit anxious and in fact he begins by sort of saying that he's not entirely convinced about this whole thing he thinks that um, painting is not the same as writing mm-hmm. and also that you know he starts with some apologies I'm going to mention some other uh, painters here it's going to sound like I'm being critical of them and insulting them. I don't mean to. I'm just using it as a point of comparison. Mm-hmm. And also, if you ever want to see my own you know, thoughts, really, just look at my paintings. But I'm going to have a go. So he does sort of uh, give Absolutely. an appropriate little bit of, uh, of uh, distance. A caveat yeah. for himself. But yes, uh, it is far-reaching, and I think it's fascinating for it because he will touch on everything from he'll go into technical uh, uh, discussions, he'll go into his purpose in art, he'll discuss the relevance of colours, on expression, he'll discuss, by the end, implicitly, a hierarchy of art. Very strange, which we don't expect. Mm. But I think the, the most important thing is to begin with this sort of first or second page, depending on your translation, um, where he gives out his technical terms. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where we need to begin, at least as a first pass. So perhaps it's best to say he does begin by discussing pictorial, uh, uh, pictorial means. That's his focus here, at least to begin with. And... This is in part to actually uh, distinguish himself from a writer, but we're going to get a very key line here, which which is really the the heart of, I think, his thought. 
And uh, it's going to be a, a, a sticking point, I think, for me. I am unable to distinguish between the feeling I have for life and my way of expressing it. And that's what we get before he then dives into his, expression, uh, his uh, technical terms of what he means by expression, what he means by composition, what he means by harmonies and dissonances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I just want us to reflect on that just for a moment. What do you make of that? That's interesting. It's, it's a bit difficult. Um, I don't entirely know what he means. And also what he means by feeling isn't completely clear. Um, I mean, immediate associations would be things like emotions, mm. um, but they're not. But then he also doesn't mean emotions, um, at least not simply. Uh, right before this, um, he talks about, he says, uh, expression to my way of thinking does not consist of the passion mirrored upon a human face or betrayed by a violent gesture. Mm. So it doesn't seem that necessarily by feeling he means, uh, you know, if the painting's blue, then I'm sad, uh, which, which is a sort of first order yeah. um, expression or means of expressing oneself that, um, that I think we're all very, we all tend to jump to whenever we try to interpret pictures. Um, Quite clearly, so Matisse isn't saying that exactly. That would make the, his pictures pretty pretty poor in terms of their expressive capacity. I mean, if all you could communicate was a simple feel, a simple emotion like that, then that'd be be difficult. So he seems to have, I think, a more holistic feeling, a sort of holistic idea about what feeling is and mm. what it is that he's expressing. And this is going to come a bit later, but. He is interested in the full uh, expression, the full feeling, the full the full impression this scene before him can leave. Mm. Um, so it's, I think it's a pretty loaded term, um, feeling for him. Yeah. So, I mean, his his purpose in writing this is to actually pick apart the various elements of what he thinks of his inner picture. That's his pictorial. This is mm-hmm. this is what it's going to be. And I think that line is, is key because it will be problematic, but he's going to, it's, because it ties in because of what he says about it, my way of expressing it, and then immediately he's into expression. And you're absolutely right. Mm. It's not going to be just mirrored in the human face or portrayed by a violent gesture. You gave an example of colour. I think that um, we can also mention something like mannerist mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, images. And he will touch upon this later where he says... Uh, certain uh, Greek statues or Egyptian statues, it's not just about a snapshot, say. It actually has to... And it's not just about depicting something in motion. Yes. It's something truer. It's something underneath. And there's... It's essentialism. Yes, and there's something... um, He's also getting at... um, He doesn't talk about this and in great depth here mm. but he seems to be talking about what it is that makes painting different from other arts also mm. or what it is that painting can do directly so at the beginning he talks about um he mentions that um uh, some people essentially see painting in some way dependent on literature or see 
would like to use literary ideas to speak of painting. Mm -hmm. And he wants to resist that quite strongly. And in saying he's unable to distinguish between the feeling I have for life and my way of expressing it, that is painting, uh, what we're going to, I guess what we're going to get is what we see with Matisse. He will not give us what we want necessarily in words. It will be through his art, through the paintings. Yeah, it's, it's certainly going to be in, There's an ineffability here mm. that he's getting to. But yeah, uh, so before we dive down into each of his different terms, I think that it helps to give a map. He doesn't give a map, mm -hmm. but uh, I think that this one, that as, at least as a, a rough guide, sure. might be useful. So we begin with this uh, discussing what we've got within a picture. We get to expression, because there must be nothing above expression. That's the highest point for him. Mm -hmm. But what is the expression? Well... It's, it's going to tie in with composition. Um, we will get uh, composition... Um, we, we get expression out of arrangement. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit problematic for me here because he does use the word, well, in our translation, arrangement, and then it leads into composition. But mm -hmm. I'm going to want to equate the two, or at least say they're strongly connected, because we don't get this word come up again later, really. So I'm going to do a little bit of... Mm -hmm equivocation here, and say that uh, expression is uh, uh, given by arrangement, that is to say composition, and then that is given by harmonies and dissonances. But there's going to be a little issue here because when he gets to talking about composition, he says, a work of art must be harmonious in its entirety. The superfluous details would, in the mind of the beholder, encroach upon the essential elements. So we've got this general idea of harmony. But then, by the time he actually does next bring up harmonies and dissonances, he does it in relation to colour. Hmm. Um, so, but I think that he also has to implicitly believe that there are other... Uh, uh, that harmony and dissonance can also apply to ob objects or entities within an image more generally. And I think you'll see that with the technical stuff when he starts saying, like, a single dot, if you start to put other dots the original dot that you applied, it will lose its force because it seems to... It's almost, a, as a rough rule of thumb, I would say that the more stuff you've got in an image, the more it sort of takes away from any of the... In, uh, 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 whether that's of necessity or just because of the way that we will actually come towards a work, it seems to detract from it and we'll lose it. And he says the same things about colour. If you have one colour uh, and then start to apply other colours... It'll actually you'll lose some of this lusciousness of the first one, um, and so I think that that has to you have to understand. I think his, uh, harmonies and dissonances are going to be not just about color, but about all of uh, the elements within, and that's what will give rise to composition, which will give rise to expression, which gives rise to his picture. Sure. So sure. I think that that is a nice first pass mm -hmm. uh, to sort of get what he's trying to do. Yes, he wants to, yeah, talk about composition being the main means of expression. Mm. Um, and again, I want to just contrast that with saying literature, it's obviously not composition. It's something else entirely. Or in uh, certain kinds of painting, um, it would be something, something like drama or something enacted, perhaps, right? So uh, if you see the example of the um, the angry face or something, so painting mm -hmm. of an angry face. Mm. Uh, 
Perhaps it's expressing itself, its emotion through that face, through that expression, through something enacted, through some kind of drama unfolding before you. Um, in literature, that is often the case, at least in novels, probably at the time too. So that's not what he's doing. He's saying, no, the mode and the means of expression here is to do with composition, it's to do with something quite detached from what we would ordinarily think as ways of uh, expressing emotion, I mean, at least from the mimicry of emotion or naive associations we might have with it. Yeah. It's very interesting. And maybe we should just mention it briefly here. Mm -hmm. His notion of expression, I suspect, is so deeply tied, because expression expression of what? Mm -hmm. We've already mentioned that he doesn't really want snapshots. He doesn't want to show things in motion, things like that. He actually is an essentialist of a kind. Mm-hmm. He thinks that there is a fundamental thing. He's almost platonic. Um, I don't think he's aware of any of these ideas. I, or at least uh, if he's, it is, he's I'm, aware of, of. I bet he's. I mean, how can? Uh, yeah, I think he's probably aware of these ideas. Floating yeah. around. I mean, not intimately, yeah. but yeah, I don't. Mm. But he, I don't think he's like maybe a metaphysician in this sense. Yeah, but no, but I mean, so you say that, but. Mm. People of this time in the different academies, I mean, the, the, you know, the, these ideas are definitely floating around. It's not, there yeah. is not the division of intellectual labor that we have today. No. Or that became de mode in the 20th century. Um, so no, ideas, ideas commingle here. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, so I think that we're going to find as we go along that expression is intimately tied to a certain kind of truth and a certain kind of nature of the object. Mm-hmm. But also how different things will relate to one another. And that itself is an idea that he wants to express. Mm-hmm. So nothing will go to waste. The, in many ways, these aren't new ideas. We've seen them before in many other works. But he goes into detail in a very particular way here by actually uh, stressing it like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's very different. So... Um, I think, first of all, let's let's then dive down into composition, what mm-hmm. he means, because he gives some interesting examples of what he thinks of as composition, stuff that might actually jar you. Um, my favorite is when he starts to talk about, you know, what do I mean? It's It will itself depend on the medium. And he gives this example of, if I get a, say, uh, say a sheet of paper, mm-hmm. or say a plank of wood or whatever, a board, and I want to make a particular work on it. I'll do that. Now let's say that I want to make that same work, but I'm giving a larger sheet of paper or a larger board. Each of us would normally think, well, you would just magnify it. Sure. You just match the ratios. He says, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't do that. What's alien to me is that he says, not that this is almost a different work. He's... He doesn't exactly say that it will be the exact same work, but he means that if sort of he begins from a starting point of wanting to do the same work on a different scale, mm-hmm. but it's going to be a different thing. And whether it is the same work or not, I mean, this is a very strange idea. Well, first off, I think I want to, this is the, the one I want to kind of gently push back against your equating of arrangement to composition. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, sure, in some way you can make the, the, the arrangement of things to make up what a f- composition is. But, like, now we're splitting hairs. But 
Where it could be different is that he considers the size of the canvas, you know, the, this, the size of things, to be a part of um, what a composition means. And I guess he just doesn't have the purely relational idea of, um, of what composition is, which a lot of people would tend to, yeah, some people mm. would have the, that, well, a, a composition is proportion, right? And that if things are similar proportionally, um, like similar triangles or something, then they are essentially the same for the sake of composition. He doesn't mm. think so. He just thinks that's not true. And it, it's weird. It would be odd to argue against him um, as it would be to argue for him. It, I think they're just different ways of seeing this. Mm. But I have sympathy. There are, I think, many works. I mean, today, it's a big trend today. I don't know if it's because galleries are enormous white spaces um, and artists like to fill them or because most art gets sold in um, art fairs and the bigger the better, I guess, so it can be seen. But there are enormous, yeah, there are enormous paintings that probably don't have to be that size and that don't use the size adequately. Well, talking about Bourgeois, for example, that Mm. you mentioned, Mm. There's a pretty, I, I'm almost sure it was him, and I, I really hope it was, otherwise it would sound really stupid. Um, there's an amazing, huge, 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 huge bourgeois that was sold, like, last year um, in Sotheby's, and there's a great video that I will link in the description about a, um, yeah, about, about that enormous painting yeah. being moved. It, it's amazing, but to see something like that, and then scale it down and scale it up. Yeah, the size seems to matter in a way. They had like it's not the same. Knocked through a wall, didn't they? I uh, most it, definitely. They had to knock through an old lady's house. And knocked it. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's right. To demolish it. But I, with I found, the old lady inside. I found a, a neat line that I think uh, will actually hmm. uh, sum up what we were saying there. Composition is the art of arranging in a decorative manner the various elements mm-hmm. at the painter's disposal for the expression of his feelings. Mm-hmm. So feelings, the feelings. composition is specifically, yes. again, uh, linked to, to the feelings. And then we get the first line, composition, the aim of which is expression. <laughs> yeah. But it's, so, it's, a yeah, wonderful step, it's a wonderful step into abstraction, what he's doing here. And I know that there were impressionists before, mm-hmm. but it's, it is a wonderful step into abstraction. And although this is earlier um, than, say, all of the cutouts that he would later go on to do... Yeah. I mean, those cutouts are pure composition. There's, there's almost, there are almost no other elements other than negative space, and these figures, right? Mm. And to think that that's the essence that Matisse distilled all of these feelings into, it's, it's kind of wonderful, and it's very, very different in kind from, say, impressionism. Yes. Infinitely so. I think that's the yeah. essentialism that comes through him. It's the essentialism. I think it's the and essentialism, and we'll see more of that when he starts gives that example yeah. of uh, an image of this lady or uh, the lines on a face that will depict something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, very but it's strange. Uh, it's it's very strange. It's a lot stranger than than one would think when one sees a Matisse. When you see a Matisse that there's this like lovely levity to them mm. many many times, and um, but th- he's he's doing something very different. I mean, he's he's doing something. Like, exactly, he's, he's doing a kind of distillation mm. of feeling and emotion to what he considers to be the bare absolute minimum to, to kind yeah. of produce something. And I say bare absolute minimum 
because he also mentions this bare absolute minimum. He says, In a picture, every part will be visible and will play the role conferred upon it, be it principal or secondary. All that is not useful in the picture is detrimental. A work of art must be harmonious in its entirety, for superfluous details would, in the mind of the beholder, encroach upon the essential elements. Yeah, it all has to, it all has to play a part. So it's, it's, I think, a significant step towards a kind of very embodied abstraction, an abstraction that is, that is still incredibly personal and moved by, um, not moved, um, uh, yes, guided by his, feel, his impressions and feelings of the world in a kind of total way. But when you say abstraction, yeah. I'm struggling a little bit. Uh, do you mean, what's the abstract element here? Well, it's abstract first in that it's not immediately... It, it, I guess it is. He is representing things. Yeah. Um, but he's not mimicking them, necessarily. No. Uh, if you think of a Matisse cutout, I mean, there's, there's very little there. No, absolutely, yeah. Um, it seems fairly abstract to me. You know? No, I certainly agree. I certainly agree. Uh, but I see. I don't think that he's going to use that, like think in those terms. I mm. think that it that is his essentialism. Mm. Uh, it is getting towards his truth. Perhaps we can just jump ahead. Just well, but so essentialism far. and abstraction. I don't d- see why it's. No, well, no, it's, it's it's different. It's different, I guess. I mean, essentialism. Although you could have the same result, essentialism is a process of boiling down. Whereas, yeah. abstraction. What is abstraction? A process of. Of. Looping up. I did. I'm I mean, it, again, it is it is, it is it is to take uh, yes. away again. It is you know it it is to 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 be you know still to be taking away. Um, but you could take away into something else, right? Yeah, that's what I always yeah. get with abstraction. Um, is, is a you could abstract away something's essence. And maybe. I think what's going to be important for him is he says, you know, what doesn't interest me are still lives or landscapes, mm-hmm. which of which he made many. He says, no, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm not interested. Not Anyone interested. who's got a Matisse that Although is a I landscape, spent, yeah. bin it. Yeah. <laughs> it is a waste of time. Even the artist hates it. He was incredibly uninterested in it, which is why he spent 25 years of his life making. <laughs> Absolutely. What a waste of t- What a tragic waste, waste of, of time. time. No, uh, but he says that, you know, it's the figure that obsesses him the most, that he thinks best represents his, his feelings towards life. Hmm. Um, and, you know, he talks about it in this religious way. He says, you know, this religion of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's going to be very, very key, and I think that ties in with the abstraction. But in the background throughout our discussion here, I do want to keep in the... Uh, 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 mm-hmm. To keep, again, still in the background, but, you know, a very bright light in the background. This point of serenity, that he is... What's, you know, we get this thing, it's expression. But, but... He wants tranquility. He wants serenity. Yes, explicitly serenity and tranquility. Yeah. yeah. And he goes into this, but, you know, to, to, you know, he wants, you don't have to be thoughtless. He says that, that that's what we began with. Mm-hmm. The mental, you know, so there is, you do have to contend with it a little bit. You don't just sort of snore in front of it. But you are meant to sort of just almost breathe a sigh of relief in this. And I think that since we brought it up now, 
it's a great time to also mention um, uh, what he means by uh, why he actually thinks this. He seems to think that there is that these are this, or he, he seems to think that this is some sort of permanent thing, and that this is a worthwhile thing. Mm. But that there are other impressions, sensations that are transitory. And he has an issue with certain impressions for doing this. You know, they'll, they'll capture, uh, say, uh, you know, a certain light, a certain mm-hmm. colour. They'll uh, uh, capture something at a certain time. But that's exactly what it is. It is an impression. It doesn't capture that essential element. It doesn't show that thing. The way that he thinks about it is he says, when I look at a work, I actually, even the same work, I want it to evoke the sensations that I had when I looked at it, but even different ones. Mm-hmm. So that when I'm looking at that work again, I can get different ones. So he then describes, you know, these autumn landscapes, things like that. And like, what, how would it look, you know, uh, this autumn scene. In the same scene, he can be looking at it and experience a kind of warmth of summer uh, in some of the colours. And it can, it, it can evoke that. But then at the same time, or rather at a different time, mm. he can look at it and it can actually have some of the chill of winter. This is the same work. And he's got these strange moments of talking about, you know, is it better to work from memory or from nature? Mm -hmm. And he says, well, actually, I think that both are sort of equally as good, really, and the same person can use both in the same work. Um, But he he, he clearly says that, you know, it's a wonderful thing when a work can actually uh, uh, elicit those same sensations that one had when first seeing it but also other ones. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to do a lot of things. He thinks that these works at their best can do a lot. But more than that, he's also happy to lose some stuff. So this is where we enter some of the technical stuff. Uh, this may be of interest for people, when, and it ties in with the lines. So, uh, he, you know, just tying it in with what we were starting off with, he says that, um, you know, when I was young, mm. I wanted to capture the, my emotions at the time. They could be fiery. He says, now I no longer want to do this. He never repudiates it, but he says that this is just not where he's really at. He says that were he to do that today, he would wait and change the painting. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was a time when I never left my paintings hanging on the wall because they reminded me of moments of nervous excitement, and I did not like to see them again when I was quiet. Nowadays, I try to put serenity into my pictures and work at them until I feel that I have succeeded. Then he goes on. Supposing I want to paint the body of a woman. How does he begin? First of all, I endow it with grace and charm. But I know that something more is necessary. I try to condense the meaning of this body. So perhaps that's where that thing of abstraction ties in. Yes. I think. Uh, By drawing its essential lines. So he clearly thinks that lines, at the very least, he's not so keen on colour, but that that lines will at least be essential initially. Mm Mm-hmm. He has different thoughts about colour. The charm will then become less apparent. So how odd that he thinks, at least in his conception, and he'll go on to say that conception is first. Mm -hmm. You actually have to have it. And he's relating it really to composition. But how is he imbuing grace and charm in it? Where is he doing it? He's not doing it in the work. Because he's saying that the second that he gets the lines down, and all he's adding is the essential lines... He's already lost some of this. So where is this grace and charm? Mm. I think it must be in his, in his thought. So I endow it with grace and charm. 
But I know that something more is necessary. I've tried to condense the meaning by drawing its essential lines. He's already not got anything else on the canvas. Mm-hmm. The charm will then become less apparent at first glance. So I, I, if he is already painting, then what has he painted? Well, <laughs> well if, he's he's painting, not... if he's painting the essence, yes. then perhaps there is a latent charm that would come about in the more you paint. But he does seem to think that these qualities, um, this kind of charm like well now i'm just now i'm reading i'm not coming up with these on the fly uh charm lightness crispness mm. um are all passing sensations yeah. they're all transitory i think i think i can empathize with this how many times have you not i don't know looked at something outside looked at a landscape uh had a brilliant idea and then you go and try to put it down or you try and take a picture mm. And it's, it, there seems to be a mismatch of a kind, right, between what one writes down and what one has seen. I mean, the, the pessimistic version is that uh, we are simply unable to capture uh, a lot of beauty, and that beauty stays outside of what we've, what we've made and, and will die outside in the world on its own. Um, the... <laughs> The, 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 the more optimistic version. Well, I guess Mati seeing this uh, phenomenon continues to work on the painting and tries to get at something else, the essence, which might not be as light and crisp, but is more enduring. Yeah, it's, well, see, I, I, if, it, if that is the case, then <laughs> what a depressing state of affairs. Uh, uh-huh. However, I don't think it is that. I think that he's actually just thinking that these are just ones that aren't part of an essence. Mm-hmm. That these are almost accidental qualities, yes. to borrow some Aristotelian term here. Uh, 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 this isn't, this, you know, these are, uh, these are accidental forms. There we go, there's the Aristotelian yeah. one. Uh, and by I've, the way, I, I think, think you're completely right. I think yeah. you're completely, I yeah. think that's exactly what he's saying. But yeah, yeah. Th- th- that's just not what it is. That, that, that there is some sort of, essential, you know, something else. Um, but I find that rather miserable that there isn't, uh, you know, I th- so I think that he says that, you know, you can capture Christmas, but then you're going to miss the essence of the thing. Mm-hmm. Do we buy that? A little bit. Well, what I, what I do think is really right is, is what he talks about right immediately afterwards. Um, the impressionist painters Monet, Cisley, especially, had delicate, vibrating sensations. Who, though they, they did capture that charm, that, that lightness, that beauty, mm. um, to such a degree that they are, to this day, probably the most popular or like generally beloved painters still. Mm. I mean, people love Monet. It's, it's insane. It's crazy the amount of people that absolutely love him. Um, and yeah, but why? No, no, no. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, feel, I feel a little divided because when I'm away from them, I think, oh, mm. but why? You go and you see them and you think, yes, they are absolutely, undeniably beautiful. Yeah. Innervingly so. But, he then says, as a result, they are, all their canvases are alike. And that's completely true. I mean, all impressionists look alike. No, that's unfair. Really? Renoir is it, is it really? Like a little bit. Renoir's yeah, very different. A little bit. In subject matter, but there is something about the style that is very... I, I, he has a point. I think he has a point. 
Oh, I, I, that, that's an agonizing one. That's an agonizing one. Um, but yeah, um, I will say he doesn't think that it is exactly either or. So if, if I'm saying that you know he, that you can't get Christmas, he doesn't say this. He says it's going. To, you're going to lose some of it. So rather, the question would be. Can you actually capture the essence of something and have these other transitory qualities, or what he imagines as transitory qualities, be vibrant? Because it seems to him that if you, you know, as it were, turn up the intensity of the transitory ones, you'll lose some of the essence. That's what he seems to mean. Whereas if you focus on the essence, you're going to dull down some of the other things. So the charm in this example of, you know, uh, you know painting the well, body. He seems to think that there is, that the essence of things is calm, that the essence of things is at rest. This reminds me a little bit of a, um, there's a, a great book of illustrations of dinosaurs. I don't know why I'm, I'm being so, <laughs> so infantile today. But this one's, I was not expecting Yeah, but that. this one's not entirely, yeah, okay. So, the, but the point is, yeah. um, usually we're used to, I mean, all, all renditions of dinosaurs we have are, Artists' renditions. I mean, we yeah. have no idea what they really look like. Mm. You can have a models or whatever, mm. but I mean, that's not science. Who knows what they really look like, right? Um, so there are these different artists' renditions, and usually you see a T Rex, you know, running through the jungle eating something. Mm. But they probably only ate once every two or three weeks. Yeah. So what do they do the rest of the time? So it's mostly sleep. <laughs> And graze around. So it's not much cop being a dinosaur. No, but it's kind of wonderful. So that book has all of these huge beasts that we tend to think of as violent and, uh, you know, prancing around uh, asleep and relaxed in different, like, states of stasis. And I, I think Matisse has a point that most of the time mm. we are not exalted, uh, very intense artists. And most of the time... You're, you know, just puttering about the house making coffee, right? <laughs> I guess, in, in a sense. Or walking around the office getting a little cup of water or <laughs> sitting there typing away. I mean, it's, it's not... Some honest skiving. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Honest skiving. I mean, most of the time, life is not lived at the paroxysms of intensity. You know? Unfortunately. See, I, I agree with you. I do agree with you, except that I actually think that with legs and balance like that of a T-Rex, that they were probably sauntering on a catwalk somewhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what they were actually doing in their So free that's time. a completely different book. Yeah. Definitely, <laughs> inappro- that's definitely inappropriate, wherever that yeah. was leading. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're big fans. You know, mm-hmm. before Alexander McQueen, you obviously had different sort of dino Russian designers. That's how mm-hmm. it worked. But yes... Um, Yeah, so we've touched upon, uh, and I think that that's very important. This is key to understanding some of his thought, and it's the underlying. And it's revealed through his technical stuff. So we do have these transitory and essential natures. And we've covered some of uh, his thoughts on the Impressionists and their issues. Uh, I would... Yeah, maybe as a summary to that particular point maybe, uh, and tying it in with motion in particular. Underneath this succession of moments, which constitutes the superficial existence of these animate and inanimate, things animate and inanimate, and which is continually absorbing, obscuring, and transforming them, it is yet possible to search for a truer, more essential character, which the artist will seize 
so that he may give to reality a more lasting interpretation. One of the big issues that I have with him is that it's not clear to me whether he thinks that he is objective or subjective. Mm. And in fact, I think that's why I wanted to bring out that thing so early on, that, you know, like, how do I distinguish my feeling about reality to the expression of it? I can't. So I think that for him they are going to be united, but this is not very satisfactory to me when I'm trying to really deeply analyse his work. I don't know what he's doing. We saw with the notion of composition, he says, arranging decorative manner, the feelings of the artist. Mm -hmm. Paraphrase that. It's unclear to me how much he's putting in. It's unclear how much he's putting in. But it's only going to get worse, as we know by the end. Because... uh, uh, Let's, let's skip ahead just a little bit, just a little bit. We'll come back, we'll come back. Um, but he becomes quite defensive later on, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. So he acknowledges, uh, you know, uh, what, what certain critics have said. Yes, I have to lump myself in with the Forbes and, yeah, how we look. Which I guess no one seems very happy to, to be lumped in with the Forbes. Oh, well, I mean, a lot of them, you know, repudiated it because they never, you know, directly. But he's happy to at least say it. Um, uh, He ends up uh, talking about uh, the rules, Mm -hmm. the rules. And, you know, let's just very simplify it, uh, simplify this rules of no existence outside of individuals. However, he at the same time ends up thinking this weird hierarchy and a lot of people I suspect who read this they'll focus on the other technical elements and we'll come back round to those very briefly later mm. on but there is this implicit hierarchy where he says well any of us can repeat a fine sentence but few can also penetrate the meaning and I have no doubt that from a study of the works of Raphael or Titian a more complete set of rules can be drawn than from the works of Manet or Renoir on its own, that's rather devastating. The fact that he says that he's, he's, he's got no doubt. He's not just open to the idea. Hmm. At this point, he seems to be conceding too much, I think, or I fear at the very least. Well, what, do we, what, what, is, what does he mean by rules have no existence outside of individuals? Otherwise, Racine would be no greater genius than a good professor. So, yeah, this that is... only individuals can exemplify rules? Or what, what, what does he mean? No, uh, it, it's, it's stranger than that. So, yeah, uh, he, after he's given his various thoughts, what he thinks about expression, how he starts to think about composition, etc., you know, he, he, he predicts these objections. He foresees these objections, saying that, you know, all I've given are platitudes... And then in this sort of almost masochistic way, he, he talks about, yeah, I've been criticised by this guy called Peldan. Mm-hmm. And saying, that, yeah, we're with these forves, and they dress just like anyone else, but they don't stick to the rules. And, uh, you know, Matisse even cuts him some slack, saying that, yeah, okay, he actually adds, I mean, honestly, with respect to the ideal and the rules. But then, uh, so this is what, that's what Peldan says, Peldan says, but Matisse goes, yeah, but what are the rules? Mm-hmm. What are the rules? And he says, I, I'm, I, I'm happy to say that they do exist, but where can I learn it? Sure. And then he goes stronger. That's where there is no existence outside of uh, uh, individuals. Um, and 
I think it's uh, the long yes. short of it is. No, you're is, right. You're right. You're right. He he. There there does seem he does seem to at least mm. agree or think that yeah. in those works of Titian, yeah, there is a yeah. A, 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 a peak of a kind or a great mastery of art. I just can't believe that he says, I have no doubt. That's yeah. what really gets me. But yeah, I, I, I think that, that rules have no existence. That's very confusing. I think really what he's touching on is whether um, these rules can be taught. It's the old platonic idea, you know, can, are there, is there any such thing as teachers? Is genius inherent? Can it be uh, taught? Uh, or, or can it be taught? Mm-hmm. You know, if so, the old platonic thing, name a great general. This is a great general. Well, those children weren't good generals. Ah, well, that's because the general can't teach it. But surely you'd get a general to teach. Otherwise, who else are you going to get if they're, you know, a good general? And at at the end, we know that the answer is they have to be remembered. Yes, it is. Um, But, yeah, he then does save it a little bit where he says, okay, maybe Raphael, uh, I I think Raphael and Titian do have these rules. And Manet and Renoir have it to a lesser degree. But he then gives us an interesting point, which is that he doesn't like imitation. And that's why that line about anyone can say something, Mm -hmm. they can memorise a great sentence, but can they understand it? Mm -hmm. Can they penetrate it? And so he then ends up giving this hierarchy where at the top, Raphael and Titian, and others of that kind, Renaissance reading, then he's got these Impressionists later on down the line. But then at the bottom, he has uh, these copies of these Renaissance works. Mm. So he says that there are many who tried to compete in that style. And so I'm imagining that maybe he's touching on certain neoclassicists. He is. He touches from explicitly... From Ecole de Beaux-Arts. Yeah, he touches explicitly such. on a few neoclassicists. Uh, Ferrand, let me see if I, 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 I've written this down. Um, he touches on, let's see, on Fermier and Flandrin, um, which are the perfect names for a pair of of uh, buffoons, I guess. But they're, they're at least Flandrin, for example, is, is a pretty wonderful painter. I mean, mm. Paintings are beautifully made, if if the, if rigid and odd, um, like a lot of neoclassicism, which is very rigid and strange. Um, so it's, it's uncanny. Breathless. There's a there's a style of there's a kind of uncanniness to these reproductions. Because they do seem to want to be from the age, but they're not. Um, they're strange, yeah. That's interesting. But yeah, and so he says he would rather have the, the least of the works by Manet or Renoir uh, above any of these copies. That there's, But how strange that he adds this at the end. Yes, I don't know whether strange. that's his own vulnerabilities coming through there, or whether this is actually something that he actually does want to recommend to painters. Mm-hmm. You know, the notes of a painter, you know, here we go. We're going to actually give you some thoughts, some feedback. Hmm. I really don't know. He then continues with, All artists bear the imprint of their time. But the great artists are those in which this stamp is most deeply impressed. So, once you team that with what he's just been saying... I think it must follow that he ends up, if, if Raphael and Titian are at the top, then that must, being in, alive in the Renaissance, must be the best time. Mm-hmm. Who knew that Matisse's Vasari in, reincarnated? Yeah. Because Vasari's Lives of the Artists is just basically a, 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 you know, a history of these various painters of the Renaissance, all the way up to get to Michelangelo, who is the culmination. 
Right. <laughs> Everyone else is just improving, but Michelangelo is the one. Who knew that Vasari is, is here with us? Yes, <laughs> well, I guess now he's also dead, but for a while, yes. up until the 1940s, he was alive and well. Yes. But yeah, I, I, I did, it's a rather troubling thing, and I suspect a lot of people will skip over that, and so that's why I wanted us to address it. It almost seems to me like the... Hmm... What do you I would think. Well, I would think that the direction of fit is wrong uh, on that one. I mean, it wouldn't be. I would think. I would think. To think merely of an artist as purely determined by his age is bizarre. Um, it's in a way a kind of very materialist, like uh, structuralist way of seeing the artist as merely products of their of their time, although he's probably not as sociological about what he means. Um, but where he says, our epoch, for instance, is better represented by Courbet than by Flandrin, by Rodin better than by Frémier, um, I could say, okay, maybe, maybe the epoch is better represented by it, but I wouldn't say that Courbet is fully determined by his epoch in a way. Um, there's also something else. Maybe it's to, yeah. to do with being tied... Uh, uh, maybe it's, again, tied to this essentialism and the truth. That something to do with how you interact with the world but and then how again, you experience that makes... anything. Mm-hmm. If the things are around you, you'll be able to penetrate these essences better. And the essences seem to change with the times? The essence of, I don't know, uh, the form, of the, the male or the female form... Mm has fundamentally changed with the times. I mean, I, it's, it's strange. It's a strange thing to, to find here, mostly because he seems to be saying that um, mimetism, you know, mimicry mm. is, is mediocrity in a way. Um, he doesn't say the word mediocrity, but yeah. that mimicking something is is automatically lesser than making something your own. Yeah. But fully bearing the imprint of your time is mimicry to your time and to others that did it. And I think it's equally it it can be it can be pretty terrible in either way to to mimic. A- anything, a critically. Well, he says, you know that you know expressing the nearly religious feeling that I have towards mm-hmm. life. Yes, I think that his attitude to life is very, very key, and his way of experiencing the world is actually his way. What he thinks of living, very key. And I think we saw this as well with Durand's last letter, especially. Um, so these are ideas that are sort of bubbling around. I think uh, as also as a great little line that we, we must mention, again, mm. tying in with this essentialism and, and the importance of line. Um, and then we'll have to very briefly talk about colour. Mm-hmm. Um, is that he, he gives an example that he's got this Italian model. And he says that when I first look at them, they, they seem to reveal just an animal existence, purely animal. <laughs> I mean, that's devastating. Um, but then he carries on and says that actually, when I look a little closer... I can actually select lines from their face. Mm. And the lines that I select from their face will denote the underlying person. Mm-hmm. It will reveal the person. Because initially he's just saying this looks like an animal. 
Mm-hmm. And now he's actually saying, no, 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 no. With the right lines that do exist in the face, I can actually capture a person. I can reveal their personhood. Mm. This is a very, very tricky idea. And I think it goes a long way in terms of understanding what we mean by essential lines. I do, I do have many issues with this because mm. I don't think he goes says enough about shape. Perhaps lines we can we can talk about shape because of his relationship to lines, or because of its their relationship to lines. Shapes mm-hmm. are built of dots or lines, points or lines. But uh, I do have issues with that. Now we should turn to colour. In fact, it's almost astounding that we've True. waited this long. But everyone talks about colour with Matisse. Mm-hmm. In fact, we'll give a, a short little thing. Kandinsky, uh, in, in one of his books, ends up saying that when I look at Picasso, Picasso is form. Mm-hmm. When I look at Matisse, Matisse is colour. And, uh, I mean, it's almost ridiculous. We, we talked about the forbes, but we're very critical about what actually Counters unites the forbes. Sure. Yes. And so he carries on. Colour theory. My choice of colours does not rest on any scientific theory. In fact, colour is purely... Uh, relational to expression and composition which is very strange to me he's got another quote elsewhere where he talks that actually colors are very important that they're, they're, they're so important that, uh, that they actually are like notes mm. in a uh, within a melody but he has a very strange way of looking at them and uh, for all of his thing that says because clearly these colors they have no point apart from this composition and expression but he says my composition begins you know, it has to begin in conception. And it's, I don't begin until I've actually got the conception. Mm-hmm. And yet my choice of colour... And after all this stuff about, like, you know, the adding dots and things like that, if I had one dot on a canvas and then step back, so this is one of his technical observations, I still see the dot very powerfully. Whereas if I start adding multiple dots, suddenly the original dot loses some of its power. Mm-hmm. Either it's shared or it's diminished in some way, etc., etc., same thing with colour. If I have, like, against a background just blue, all you've got to contend with is the canvas and the blue, uh, and also the amount of blue with the mm-hmm. shape. But then I start adding other colours, and suddenly the relationships will change. I think this is interesting. I think we can... The best way to understand it is, like, words in a sentence. Mm-hmm. I can just say a single word, like uh, green, uh, and that will have a certain evocation. Uh, but then I use it in a sentence, like... Uh, say green trees suddenly it's taking on a different thing before you might have just thought of some sort of ideal some sort of just like a wall of color Mm. then i've given it a tree and and suddenly it's changed so i think that there's a parallel to be drawn there in terms of our understanding but he goes on to say that yeah it's down to chance Uh, or he doesn't say chance he says it's instinctive Mm -hmm. Uh, so he doesn't have a set plan and he's already not happy to just paint it's things the way they appear. It, it's instinctive, but also it's... It, it's uh, yes, it's instinctive, but it follows... Uh, it, it has to do with the canvas that he has, the space, mm. you know, everything, that where that first dot was placed, and, and from there on, his feeling guides mm. it. But it's not an entirely unguided process. Mm. I actually think that he's being... I, I, I regret his choice of language here with mm-hmm. the spontaneity or this instinctiveness or whatever, um, because he'll go on to say that he thinks that this is actually an alternative set of rules or perhaps is an alternative set of rules. Because mm-hmm. he gives the example of Signac, uh, who, uh, following Delacroix, from, that's what I mentioned, the Delacroix book earlier, uh, the Signac's uh, Delacroix, New Impressionism, uh, 
we've got with Signac focus on complementary colors. So we have rich color theory, Goethe and others, you know, they're writing about color theory mm. to do with, you know, analogous, uh, uh, opposite colors. He's, uh, uh, Matisse is saying, I don't believe in any of this, really. I don't buy any of that. These complementary colors, no, I don't want any of it. And, and like saying, actually, we should go slightly off complementary because then it's not a stark. He says, no, 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 no. We just need whatever it is. And this is a kind of a deeper one. I kind of like that, too. Mm. And yeah, it, it is. It is. A, it does seem chancy in some ways to me because he says that um, you know I start with one color mm-hmm. and I can actually carry on, and it can be subconscious that you know by the end of a piece I've added def- different colors and you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know carry on uh, exaggerating ones and other uh, you know diminishing but, others. I mean, I and then only at the end does he realize that he's preferred one. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can only know until you know. You can't know that before, or if you were to try to make that same painting trying to adhere to some set of rules that you think you might have discerned from other experiences, Mm. maybe you would not have reached, made the the mistake or reached the point that would have then led you back to make that other painting. It would have been something totally different. But see, I just have a problem with it because of... It stands in some sort... I don't say that it is necessarily contradictory, but it does seem to stand in some sort of tension with Mm. how important the composition is and his conception before he even starts to do with it. And it's all ultimately expression, and the colours are all going to be for this. How, within the same thing, you can can have that. Perhaps you can think about it similarly to what he'd said before. He seems, again, very concerned with stillness, Hmm. with letting things sit for long enough that he can grasp their essence. Yeah. Can one really grasp the essence of something at once before you've climbed the mountain? I don't, I don't think so. I don't I think, think so. I think that that process of finding that stillness is for him important. And it's through that process that he makes it intentional. And he then makes those choices more intentional than they otherwise would have been. Mm. If not, one risks the fuzzy, um, those nice words that he said about the Impressionist. Yes. But yeah, no, I I don't want to make that fallacy of composition where, okay, just because there may be some sort of Mm -hmm. uh, randomness or thoughtlessness that goes into the work, that the whole thing is therefore thoughtless. Right. I don't want to make that. That's fallacy of composition. Uh, composition. But it, it, in terms of his method, it just seems a little strange mm. that he's quite comfortable with it. And, and so that's really what I wanted to, to, yes. to draw out on in terms of how, how happy he is, because it seems so deliberate in other ways. Um, but I think that's how he makes it deliberate, because mm. you, 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 you can't make feeling deliberate. I mean, feeling is not deliberate, almost by definition. Right? I mean, you, you, don't, you, you have no, no say as to how you feel. Only a coward would say, no, 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 no. no. I mean, yes. You have no say as to yeah. how you feel. You feel the way you feel. And then how you react or respond to it, then, okay, that, that's, that's where yes. one can deliberate. Mm. So uh, I think it's perfectly consistent. Um, I think we might have been a little harsh on him later when he talks about being of his time. Mm. Um, 
it occurs to me that in the environment that he was writing this in, yeah, there was a lot more um, pushback from the academy and from, um, yeah, I guess from the powers that be of the time against mm. those that were experimenting. Right, because yeah. he was kicked out of school. All of this, so. Perhaps he's more trying to fight for new ways of doing things as opposed to merely saying that one ought to be uh, of their age, which is, again, not something I'm perfectly happy with. Mm. I mean, he, he did sell works based off of the notoriety in those days. Certainly. But maybe he did also feel a little bit you know, grim. Uh, I mean, whether or not he felt grim is, is a bit besides the point. It's more that he was in an adversarial... There was somewhat of an adversarial relationship with with many critics or many people of the time that seemed to think that hearkening back to a time that admittedly he thinks was better than the one he's living through now, artistically, was, uh, was the right way to go. And he was sort of entreating them to know, to try the, the new forms of the moment. But even then, still, I, I do have problems with that. See, I've been reading a lot of Schiller, who says directly the opposite. Um, I mean, like literally, diametrically the opposite. Mm. But Schiller had a backbone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Has to yeah. be, if you're going to be part of Sturm und Drang. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I thought I would just mention, really, this should be for our second follow-up episode, but I will mention it here. Uh Le Joie de Vivre, mm -hmm. this great work of his, of Matisse's, is purchased by the Steins, Leo and Gertrude Stein. Mm. Um, but, and it gets pride of place in their, in their, in their home, and it's sort of oh, nice. exhibited. However, it loses this position uh, after they purchased uh, uh, Picasso's Demoiselle d'Avignon. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, eventually, um, Leo I, Leo Stein sold it, I believe. Hmm. He sold uh, Le Joie de Vie. He was like, yeah, get rid of that. <laughs> We're oh. with Picasso, not with Matisse. <laughs> so maybe that's where the, the rivalry a little bit comes from. Hmm. But yeah. Interesting. So, so I found uh, the bit from Schiller that I was, oh. was thinking about. Yes, please. Um, Live with your century, but do not be its creature. Work for your contemporaries but create what they need, not what they praise. Think of them as they ought to be when called upon to influence them. Think of them as they are when tempted to act on their behalf. Now, again, it's I don't excellent. want to be... It's, it's, it's so good. It's brilliant. And I don't want to be too cruel to Matisse um, because he's not writing a philosophical treatise on the aesthetic education of man necessarily. Mm -hmm. But there does seem to be a difference in the broad conception of what art is for them. And I think perhaps we can expand it beyond Matisse and talk a little bit more about the, the place of decorative art and to mm. think of art decoratively mm. as opposed to, say, what Schiller has in mind, where for him it is an essential component in the ennobling of mankind, of, of a sense. And... Which isn't to say that just because Matisse wants people to be able to see something beautiful and recline in an armchair, I don't think that's miseducating mankind. 
Right. I, I don't think that that's necessarily... No, but the works, work yeah. should be like that. The, sure. The actual, the actual just taking the work in, that's how you should feel. <gasps> oh, yeah. And there is, there is something to it, but, but there's also something to be said for art that is deeply disquieting. Yes. That is deeply disquieting, that does the diametric opposite of that armchair. And perhaps that other art allows for the ought to be. And maybe Matisse's does too. Maybe there's a place. But there might be, and I, we should start thinking about this, if there is a tension between a decorative conception of art mm. and, and perhaps another one um, that I don't have a, a name for necessarily. Um, well, typically, if it was sort of, you know, certain works, not everyone, but uh, if they were decorative then they weren't really praised weren't really considered, considered as fine art. Yeah. If they were just sort of pretty, ornamental, you are lacking some sort of aesthetic substance. Mm -hmm. uh, these other, you know, and different aesthetic accounts looked at this in different ways, you know, they look at things like the sublime and, mm. um, you know, maybe some things that are pretty might be thought of as uh, you know, appealing to baser things rather than higher. And I mean, in, in this general context, that was often women's things mm. that were thought as decorative and, and associated mm. in that way and but denigrated eventually. Yeah. But nonetheless, there is... There is something interesting here, and perhaps beginning... But, I mean, the impressions also are entirely inoffensive. They're, 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 they're so warm and welcoming and perfect to put in your living room. And I think part of my difficulty with them, maybe, is... I'm trying to think of one that I wouldn't have. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's is, the, is, is, is their incredible decorative um, quality. Um... And that's part of their enduring popularity. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is, this is a tension. This is something lingering. But again, I don't want to fully pour that on Matisse because it is good to also see a work and feel a great calm at having witnessed the essence of a human figure. I don't want to say that that's valueless in any way. No, no. I, no that's I, absolutely I brilliant, too. I think... Um, but there is in the background a conception, perhaps, of work as decorative, which which is interesting. Do you? Th I, see, I'm not sure about that. The, the, mm. the decorative element. I'm not sure about that. I think these are notes, okay? And yes. So yeah, this is all we got to do. Uh, see, I think we do have to. Uh, the the it, it is far-reaching. We have got mm. lots of interesting uh, uh, discussions about how he actually carries out his methods, you know. So he's beginning mm -hmm. with his eyes. He thinks you have to have the conception. But we have got his purposes. He's got how it ties in. And, okay, with a little bit of manoeuvring, you can kind of get some sort of uh, uh, tree uh, of ideas going. That, okay, uh, we have to, you know, ultimately it's expression. And that's going to be tied to something that's sort of true in this essential way. Right. And that is uh, engendered by composition, and that itself is engendered by um, uh, harmonies and dissonances. Mm. And this is sort of the roughly what he's got going on, um, and tied to that. Just think about the decorative stuff. Yeah, that was from the arrangement. The you know mm -hmm. composition is arrangement with decorative things for the uh, impressions. So 
feelings of the artist. So yeah, that that is there. No, but you're right. It's not. He's not primarily decorative. Mm. Um, it's, but it is. I I I'd be wrong to say that it is an ingredient. Yes, mm-hmm. you're right there. But yeah, and so people would read this also. I think because of the color theory mm-hmm. um, that's given there, uh, and also the importance of composition. And he still he still does believe. I mean, hidden within this little critique that we've made is that he does appreciate. He would much rather see uh, a Cezanne, you know, or a Rodin that are making something their own yes. as well. Um, yes. And another another thing, this really, I, him thinking that well, the essence of things is stillness. Mm is, I think, beautiful. I, I can't immediately think of any other artist that has a conception of uh, essential beauty like that. It's usually the opposite. It's usually catharsis or something like that. Yeah. I think that this is very, very important that you see, you know, I think you've got these three points, uh, one of which I don't think is mentioned enough. We talk about Matisse on colour, Mm-hmm. And they probably talk about his lines because by the end, when we see the cut-ups, that's our dominant thing. But we also see, uh, oh, and that ties in with the essence. Mm. But we also see that he is looking for this balance, purity, and serenity, and he doesn't want these transitory things. And so I wonder how seeing other works, because he stays by this, it seems throughout his life, by looking at different, uh, you know, writings at different periods, he stays to this. Mm. He doesn't change. And I wonder, you know, something like the cutout Icarus Falls, you know, from mm-hmm. the book Jazz, um, which is, you know, that well-known blue image of, you know, where there's, looks like a bang in the background, but it's meant to be a star. Mm-hmm. And then you get this uh, figure. You can't really tell what it is. In fact, a lot of the book looks like it's a kind of circus book, and a lot of it is. But there's also some sort of strange tragedy in there, because mm-hmm. he's got these trapeze artists who seem to be falling from the trapeze, and then you've got you know, Icarus, uh, mm. okay, this is Icarus falling. It looks very joyful, and yet there's this strange uh, kind of sadness there. And so, mm. yeah, I, especially when reading about the purity and serenity, but then devoid of a troubling or depressing subject matter, I wonder how to think about those works. And so in our next episode... We will. We will, <laughs> yes. we will. We'll look at some important works. Um, some that we haven't already looked at. Absolutely. So please join us for that.